Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now and helping us get in front of more people. We appreciate that so much. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Join our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, for at least three bonus episodes of the show per month and access to our Discord channel and so much more at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Our latest bonus episode is on Pop Pantheon fave Kim Petrus's new album, Feed the Beast, which dropped last week. And check out our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Niche Legend Dad Hat. You need that. Let me tell you that. You really do need that. All right. So next Gorgeous Gorgeous LA, this is my queer pop party, is happening on July 14th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. If you want to come, which like, why wouldn't you want to if you're in the greater Los Angeles area and you want to hear me play pop music all night long, the ticket link will be in the show notes of this episode. All right. So this week's installment is a hobby horse of mine. I think anybody that listens to this podcast might know that I am a huge fan of this week's subject. Charlie Puth. I feel like I walk around all the time having to justify that to people, which is like weird because I feel like this audience is obviously devoted to a lot of pop stars that feel underrated or underappreciated, but yet Charlie Puth, I think somehow feels like even underrated amongst that group of people. He's also a male pop star that I feel a lot of affection for or a contemporary male pop star that I feel a lot of affection for, which is honestly rare. I just think he has made some of the best, most unimpeachable pop music of recent times. And I really wanted to take an opportunity on the show to illustrate why I believe that, to make my case. He's also made some bad songs too, and I think that we are going to get into all the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Charlie Puth narrative career and discography in this episode. So without further ado, please bear witness to Pop Pantheon, Charlie Puth. The term pop star might honestly be a bit of a stretch for my boy Charlie Puth. Despite making quite a few hits over the last 10 years, Charlie, with a persona that could be best described as a studio nerd who just realized he might be hot, is a bit of an ill fit when it comes to the persona-driven cult leader trappings of modern pop stardom. One thing Charlie is certainly not an odd fit for, though, is making incredible pop music. I know this may come as a shock to some of you who may only remember him as the guy who sang the hook on the saccharine, nightmare Paul Walker tribute song, See You Again, or on his first few radio hits like the the truly hellish Megan Trainor duet Marvin Gaye. The truth of the matter, though, is that Charlie Puth is a true wonderkind who, especially on his criminally underrated sophomore album 2018's Voice Notes, has been making some of the most virtuosic, sheerly enjoyable pop tunes and some of my personal favorites of recent times. Charles Otto Puth was born on December 2nd, 1991 in Rumston, New Jersey, a well-to-do tri-state borough in which both Bruce Springsteen and John Bon Jovi were neighbors of the Puth family. Charlie's mother, Deborah, was a music teacher who wrote commercials for HBO, and his father was a real estate agent and builder. Charlie learned to play the piano from his mother at age four and soon began to experiment with recording songs, even selling his own self-produced Christmas album, Have a Very Charlie Christmas, to his neighbors when he was in sixth grade. In high school, Charlie commuted from New Jersey to Harlem every Saturday to study 
studied jazz and classical music at the Manhattan School of Music and became an aspiring YouTube star, sort of in the vein of Justin Bieber, although much less successful. He made jokey videos performing cringy white boy parodies of 50 Cent's Candy Shop or instructional videos for the latest hip-hop dance trend, while also covering songs by Bruno Mars and Demi Lovato with his impressive, pristine vocal tone. He had talent and boy-next-door affability and charm, but certainly didn't jump out as a superstar. After high school, he studied music production and engineering at the prestigious Berklee School of Music in Boston, while also trying to kickstart his career by taking the train to New York to pitch his songs to record execs. After winning a Perez Hilton talent contest with a cover of Adele's Someone Like You, Charlie caught the attention of Ellen DeGeneres, who signed him to her now-defunct record label 1111 and released two EPs, 2010's The Autotunes and 2013's Ego, neither of which made much of an impact. After this false start with Ellen, Charlie signed a new deal with APG Atlantic and wrote some minor hits for other artists. But his major break came, strangely enough, in the form of the untimely passing of beloved actor Paul Walker in 2015, when Charlie wrote and was featured on rapper Wiz Khalifa's Furious 7 soundtrack lead single, See You Again, a tribute to Walker's memory. The song became a cultural sensation, spending 12 weeks atop the Hot 100, collecting 1.6 billion streams and going 11 times platinum. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. See you again. We've come a long way, yeah, a long way from where we began. You know we started. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. I'll tell you. When I see you again. The massive success of See You Again helped propel Charlie's mostly self-written and produced album, 2016's Nine Track Mind, and, and I'm so sorry to say this, mostly god-awful collection of anodyne, personality-less pop radio fluff to produce three increasingly hit singles. His official debut, Marvin Gaye, a very loosely Motown-gesturing duet with Megan Trainor, hit number 21, follow-up One Call Away, hit number 12, and perhaps the only redeemable record in the batch, the Selena Gomez featuring We Don't Talk Anymore, topped out at number nine. Despite extraordinarily negative reviews, which pegged Charlie as the worst kind of blank pop cipher. Nine Track performed well commercially, going double platinum. But even with this success, Charlie Puth still didn't feel like an actual pop star. The hits from Nine Track felt exactly like the kind of songs you'd nod along to passively in the toothpaste dial at CVS, but would create zero interest in who is singing them. Charlie himself even went on to disavow this album, saying in an interview, the critics beat me to my own words. Everything changed for Charlie, though, in 2017, when he released Attention, a slinky, spare, and funky kiss-off to an emotionally deceptive woman. The record presented all of Charlie's unique strengths as a performer and music maker that his earlier work had not. Emotionally available and notably self-aware, a technical wizard capable of creating pop music that had bite, precision, and absolutely indelible hooks. Attention became his biggest hit to date, peaking at number five on the Hot 100. Voice Notes, his sophomore album which followed, worked largely in the same vein as Attention, while also showcasing Charlie as an adept adapter of various pop styles of the past, from 80s synth pop to 90s acapella R&B ballads without ever losing his modern sensibility and singular point of view. Voice Notes was a decent commercial success, eventually going platinum, but more importantly earned him a notable critical reevaluation, with many in the music intelligentsia pegging it as one of the most solid pop records of that year. Voice 
Snow's reception helped reposition Charlie in an ever-expanding pop space of the late 2010s, not necessarily launching him to traditional pop stardom, but landing him somewhere adjacent to some of this podcast's favorite women stars, smaller acts who are often pegged as underappreciated, engendering a niche but fiercely devoted fan base. During the pandemic, Charlie also became a viral sensation on TikTok, where he documented his process of turning banal sounds around his home into pop songs. This move helped mitigate the fact that Charlie remains a bit of an oddball as a traditional capital P pop star by capitalizing on his hot nerd studio rat persona. His TikTok notoriety helped him earn another top 40 hit with the infectious 80s pastiche Light Switch in early 2022. He released his self-titled third album later that year. Charlie Puth has two platinum albums and nine platinum singles. He's charted four top 10 hits and one number one song on the Billboard Hot 100. He's won three Billboard Music Awards, two Teen Choice Awards, and a Nickelodeon Kids Choice Award and has been nominated for four Grammys. Here with me to discuss the career of one of my personal pet faves, Charlie Puth, is writer, critic, and returning guest, Stephen J. Horowitz. All right, I'm here with music journalist and my friend, Stephen J. Horowitz. Stephen, welcome back again for the fourth time to the show. Yes, thanks for having me again. I love doing these. Me too. If anybody is not a Patreon subscriber, Stephen and I recently had a delightful conversation about Ariana Grande's positions about two months ago. I really enjoyed that conversation, I have to say even though maybe I enjoyed that conversation more than I enjoyed positions significantly. More. <laughs> uh, plus one on that one. <laughs> we found some value in positions this go around, but I personally found more value in the conversation. So I could not agree more. I'm so glad you felt the same way. We're here today to talk about a pop star that I think you and I both weirdly really like, but is somehow both really popular, but also feels kind of outside of the centrist pop conversation in a weird way. What do you think is Charlie Puth's appeal to us? You know, I was also talking to Jordan Sargent yesterday, and he's obsessed with Charlie, too. It's like everybody's smart, who I respect, and a lot of gay guys really like Charlie Puth. He's like the one straight white male pop star that we're all standing. What is it about him? I think there's a lot of things that feed into the allure of Charlie Puth. I think, namely, he's a huge music nerd. Yeah. He is so obsessed with the fundamentals of music, and that translates in real time anytime he performs, anytime you listen to one of his songs. You can tell that this is a musician's musician. Right. He's a master at what he does. So I think people gravitate towards that, I think, on a fundamental level. His records sound technically perfect, mm -hmm. and they're well-constructed and easily digestible and listenable. This is a student of pop music who has taken what he's learned and applies to his own career. So I think on that level, we love him. But on the pop scale as a pop star, I think people are attracted to the fact that he's kind of like this adorable nerd right. who accidented into being a sex symbol and <laughs> sort of plays into and against that in everything yeah. he does. I mean, we'll probably talk about it at some point during this, but him with all of his thirst traps and really leaning into the sexuality of being a pop star and it not necessarily feeling genuine is what makes it so charming. <laughs> yeah, charming sometimes and then sometimes so annoying. It's always walking <laughs> that line for me. But I do agree there's great power in the hot nerd. The hot nerd archetype is an incredibly powerful one. And I feel like he occupies that role really effectively. But I think at the end of the day, he'd be Nick Jonas if it wasn't for the fact that the music is, when it is amazing, it's so amazing. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of shitty music today. And then we're also going to talk about some of my 
favorite music that I can remember in recent times. And he also, on record, I think comes across as genuinely kind of vulnerable and hapless in a way that is incredibly appealing. He has a certain innocent naivete to him at the same time as he can be sort of a scuzzbag that I think is like an interesting combination on his best music. His music has sexual heat, but also he's kind of a naive at the same time. Absolutely. We'll probably get into this at some point, but you can see a seismic shift in his career when he puts out a second record. Yeah. And when we're talking about bad music, we're largely talking about everything that came before that. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. He talks about it quite often in interviews and things of that nature where he talks about how people can tell when you're being genuine mm. and voice notes is the record where he became genuine and since then that vulnerability that you're talking about shines through immensely mm. we get that honesty and comfortability with himself in being vulnerable in talking about experiences that code as real and it's just enjoyable to experience as a listener. So Yeah, paired with the technical prowess. Here's my last question before we get into the meat of the episode, which is, is Charlie Puth famous? Because it's this really weird thing. And I like brought this up. I can't remember. I think it might have been on a Patreon episode where I'm like, you have to understand something. Light Switch has more Spotify streams than Cuff It. Light Switch is yep. a huge song. And yet it peaked at like number 28 on the Hot 100. And his most recent album, I feel like nobody has any idea that it happened besides us because we went to the listening party or whatever. But besides that, he seems like he's at once very famous and successful as a pop star, but also a lot of people like are very unaware of him at the same time. How do you view his footprint in the firmament? Yeah, I think he doesn't have a big personality. Right. You look at someone like Ariana Grande or even Megan Trainer, who <laughs> is an analog to Charlie Puth in a lot of ways. Oh, and we're going to have the pleasure of getting to speak about her. Today. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> of the mother herself. <laughs> oh, God. I think we don't get that big personality from him. And therefore, like you said, he would be a Nick Jonas. He would sink into anonymity. And I feel like you can apply that to Nick Jonas, right. especially because he is a very anonymous pop star, even at the level of fame that he's operating. But Charlie doesn't have that pop, that star power that a Beyonce has. It's funny that you bring her up and cuff it in comparison because Beyonce has all the allure in the fucking world. Yeah. And Charlie Puth has no allure. <laughs> and I think that's probably why he doesn't scan in a similar orbit as these major pop figures. Right. He feels like at once there's a lot of people that really like him. And yet I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's like a big pop fan, gay guy, a little younger than us. I was like, I'm prepping to do an episode on Charlie Puth. And he was like, I don't think I've ever heard a single Charlie Puth song in my life. So <laughs> I was like, okay, interesting. And I still feel like when I say that I like Charlie Puth, I still feel like I'm on the defense about that. I still don't feel like people fully understand understand he makes great music even there's a lot of people that do know who he is but just see him as the see you again marvin gay thing and they don't understand that at some point he actually became good he's kind of enigmatic in this way i think to a lot of people i completely agree i think he just doesn't have the personality to carry it yeah 
And with voice notes, I feel like a lot of people, music critics in particular, and gay men, which arbiters of taste, of course, sure. we all heard attention and we were like, oh, there's something happening here. And that at least is what pulled me in. Yeah. I'm an adult and part of my philosophy on listening to and enjoying music is there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Of course, yes. You should never be ashamed of what you listen to. Yeah. But I am ashamed to admit that I love Carly Poots. I know, <laughs> me too. It's one of the rare moments that I actually experience that. And I think it has to do somewhat also with the fact that like in the game, context he's a straight guy he's really one of the only straight male contemporary pop stars that i like go up same with me it's not a common occurrence we don't see that same level of fandom and attention to detail to an artist as we do with charlie puth and people like us i mean you take a look at artists like sean mendez and justin bieber and they have their little girly squads and all of that and i think for the rest of us, we have Charlie Puth. <laughs> we dance in that world. All right. So let's go back and talk a little bit about the early life of Charlie Puth. Where does Charlie Puth come from? I know you guys share some DNA in your backgrounds here. So tell me a little bit about Charlie's backstory. Anything about his early life that you think feels instructive to understanding him as a star? Yeah, it makes sense that I'm a Puther because <laughs> we're both from New Jersey. A little background on Charlie. He was born in Rumson, New Jersey to a music teacher and a builder. Seemed like he had a pretty humble life. He had two siblings, one of whom, Stephen Puth, is also a musician. Stephen Puth. I love Charlie Puth enough to have even listened to Stephen Puth's music. <laughs> Just to give some context for my fandom here. He sort of walked through his background musically over and over again. I mean, at this point, it's written in stone. He knew he had perfect pitch when he was four. Right. He grew up studying classical music and then listening to the Beatles in the car and connecting the dots between the musical theory that exists in either world mm. and really applying that to what he does. There's one story he talks about how when he was 10 at church, the organist didn't show up for mass and they needed someone to fill in at the last minute. And from memory, Charlie Puth, came in and saved the day and played the whole thing. He's told that story in so many interviews, it's a little cringy. But that's just sort of the background and pedigree that Charlie has. He went to Berkeley School of Music. He studied music production and engineering. He was born to be in music. It just took him quite a while to figure out how that was going to change. When does he begin his YouTube journey? Because I know he starts out as kind of like a YouTube prankster, essentially, right? Yeah, essentially. So he's talked about how he saw Justin Bieber blowing up on YouTube in 2007. Yeah. And... We all know how Justin Bieber got discovered by Usher and YouTube played a huge part in that and blah, 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 blah. He wanted to follow in Bieber's footsteps. So he started his own account, Charlie Vlogs, in September 2009. And it was some humiliating stuff. Oh my God, Steven. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Charlie, even recently in a TikTok he posted, he duetted with another user who pointed out the music video that he had put out on this account and he said there is a treasure trove of humiliating stuff please go find it well it is all there and yeah if you're looking for big cringe charlie <laughs> pooth has a library of cringe do you want to learn how to do the arab money dance oh, oh, oh you've come to the right place my friend now this is a lot to take all in at once so i want you to pay attention very closely you take your two index fingers one two Point them to the left. Then you take your two same index fingers and point them to the right. You cannot use your fists when you're pointing to the left and to the right. That does not show that you have Arab money. This shows that you have Arab money for some reason. Once you point to the left and to the right, 
This is very complicated. Please do not get scared by this next instruction. He put out music videos for songs like Red Hyundai, Sexy Shades. These are my sexy shades, not not yo sexy shades. These, these are my sexy shades. Sexy breakdown. I guess the comparison is like Lonely Island, but worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's a low bar. Yeah, I sent you this thing yesterday of him doing Candy Shop by 50 Cent. Oh. It has that embarrassing flavor that was a big deal when we were kids of the white guy that loves hip hop and has not a ton of cultural sensitivity at the same time. Take you to the candy shop. One taste of what I got. I'll have you spending all you got. Keep going till you hit the spot. Whoa, you could have it your way. How do you want it? You're gonna back the thing up or shut up, shut up on it. Temperature rising, okay, let's go to the next level. Dance floor jam-packed, hot as a tea. The self-awareness meter is non-existent here. He is just truly humiliating himself. <laughs> in ways that he does not seem remotely aware. But also feels in standing with his current persona in a way. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of self-effacing and he doesn't really take himself too serious. I mean, he takes music so seriously. But I think everything surrounding it, it's done with sort of an air of omniscience and he's aware of his presence and his standing in the pop firmament. He doesn't really compare himself to the greats. He just sees himself as a student of music and it does seem like he's genuinely happy to be there. Yes, definitely. He has a real puppy dog vibe in that way. All right, so then he's releasing covers, covering Bruno Mars songs, covering Demi Lovato songs. Hello, everyone. So I was watching a Christina Grimmy video, and she did a really good job at covering Skyscraper, and now I'm getting a lot of requests to do this song, too. So you can't see it, but here's the piano. I don't really feel like moving the camera because I got it really perfect. And so uh, here's Skyscraper by Demi Lovato. You can take everything I have You can break everything I am Like I'm made of glass Like I'm made of paper Go on and try to tear me down I will be rising we move from YouTube pranking to YouTube cover because that was the era of YouTube covers, essentially, right? Yeah, Justin Bieber did this exact thing, and that's sort of what set him on this path. So it does make sense that he follows in that footsteps. But this is also sort of where his career starts to formulate right. in this space, particularly with this Perez Hilton competition that he won singing Adele, Someone Like You. I don't know if you've seen the video, but... Oh, I've seen it. It's a duet with somebody who has now 6,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> 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 got left behind in the wake of food. Literally. But doing these covers truly did set him on the path to his next adventure. He ended up performing on the Ellen show. Old friend, why so shy? I like you to hold back. Hide from the which led him to signing to her label 1111. We've heard numerous horror stories come out of that little chunk of history, most recently with Grace and Chance, who, I don't know if you've read the Rolling Stone article, 
by Tomas Mayer, but wow, that was a dangerous place to be. And he just sort of talked about, he was saying he didn't want to be a musician at the time. He didn't want to be in the spotlight. He wanted to be a producer. Mm. And he, when he signed to 11.11, he still was in school and he had school to finish. And that was sort of his focus. He really wanted to move into the production world. But being a solo artist, doing all these covers on YouTube and then going the Ellen route really set the framework for what we would eventually see happen with Charlie's career. Do we see through these covers, through the Ellen stuff, through whatever, do we see what makes Charlie Proof a compelling on-record presence? Like, is everything that we were sort of laying out at the beginning of the conversation present to you when you look at these covers and this whole period of YouTube fame or YouTube semi-fame? Yeah, I think you can see that he has the fundamentals. And I'm sure we'll talk about his first few releases shortly, but he has the chops. They're just completely unrefined. Right. And I think that's why YouTube is a great avenue, especially at this point in time where so many people are getting signed off of YouTube. It's truly the de facto way to get yourself discovered. And so you could see that he has the potential. It's just about refining it and really playing to his strengths, which I don't think he understands quite yet how to do in 2011. The aspirations of being a producer are very interesting to me because he strikes me as super studio rat. I mean, he's now built this entire TikTok persona on here's how I make a song. You can see that he can really sit there and make these productions completely on his own and they're so good the ones that are good are amazing so that's a really interesting insight as is this whole social media era to me because i didn't even really know this part of charlie Puth's career until i was prepping for this and i know that he's had this reinvention as like a tiktok celebrity at this point that's been a big thing for him lately so when he had that transition recently i was like oh so he's one of the rare millennial stars that's found a voice and way to work tiktok well it actually makes a ton of sense that he has because he has this background as a social media star. He's always been somebody that's been able to pull the levers of social media as a means of buttressing his music career. So I didn't have any idea about any of this stuff. I was totally unaware of his YouTube Perez Hilton, Ellen label life. That was totally new to me. I think part of that is also because he wasn't a huge YouTube star. He sort of dabbled in the Shane Dawson universe and right. he was writing theme jingles for other YouTubers' accounts or whatever it may be. But I don't recall him at the time even being a prominent force. And I think that's probably why that piece of history is lost. But it definitely does make sense because he's a social media whiz kid. Everything he does on the internet, he plays it all pretty correctly, even down to the thirst traps. I think he does it very wisely yes. in terms of presentation and frequency of such thirst posts. <laughs> but yeah, he definitely grew up at a time where the learning curve for social media was really hitting its full stride. So I think he took a lot from that. So he releases his debut EP in 2010 called The Auto O-T-T-O Tunes. We took a listen to this. Oh boy. What's happening here? on his first set of original music from 2010. Well, how would you describe what is happening on on these songs? First, to his credit, he disavows this project <laughs> entirely. <laughs> he disavows a lot of his work, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, he does love to disavow each project from one to the next. But this project is 
an archival piece of humiliation. <laughs> it's so undercooked and underdeveloped. And there are a lot of YouTube comments on the project, which was taken down years ago from streaming platforms and iTunes yeah. by design and for his own good. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, there are collections of tracks where even his voice and the way that he sings sounds entirely different. The music is cliche. The lyrics are overwrought and trite. I mean, I think one of the songs is even called I Suck at Writing Lyrics. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. How do people have the attention span to go and do this? Two hours in this chair, I might as well call it quits. Another sappy love song, my listeners will be pissed. I would seriously pay someone right now to go and help me with this. I was like, this is so meta and it's kind of freaking me out. Literally, the lyric is, I would seriously pay someone right now to go and help me with this. <laughs> and then the chorus is, da, 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 this is the chorus, something like that. Uh, yeah, he has said in interviews, my voice was not developed yet. I think that you can summarize the project with that statement from Charlie himself. I was writing notes as I was listening to this and I was like, this is like if Ben Folds was somehow nerdier. Yeah, it's also a little musical theatery. I kept thinking. Yes, I wrote Theater Kid vibes. Yeah, community theater. It was giving me a lot. Yeah, community theater. Oh, the one credit I will give to Charlie Puth about this project is sort of like what I was explaining about with his YouTube persona and, and the stuff that he was posting there is he has the raw abilities. There's no question here that he doesn't have what it takes to get to the next level. Yeah. I think you can look at a song like, I don't want to hurt you, baby. There's an acoustic version of it on this project. I didn't even want to hear the non-acoustic version, <laughs> but he could sell this. Yes. It's just about figuring out how the pieces fit together. And he's not there yet. I don't want to hurt you, baby. I don't want to hurt you, baby, no more. And the earnest sense of pure vulnerability, which I do think is part of his ace card as a musician, is here. Even in its sort of DIY aesthetics, he comes across as very sweet, but also you can sense that the talent is there. I mean, it really is interesting, even though I completely agree with you, I will never, ever listen to any of these songs ever again, unless by force. If I was him, I would send DMCA takedown to this day. If I have a moment for my brain to relax, it would kick into, okay, time to put in the takedown. Thank God we didn't grow up in the era where our entire teenage years are played out on the internet. Oh, I thank God every day for this. This feels like Charlie unfortunately missed the cutoff for that. Yes, just. That's where our generational divide is between him and us, Stephen, is we were the last group that sort of didn't have that going on. Literally right at our age right now. Everyone younger than us started to kind of be children of social media, the internet, etc. I think we're the only ones who remember touching grass. <laughs> so, all right, 2013, he puts out another EP called Ego that I do believe came out on Ellen's label. What did you think about this EP? He definitely judges it up a bit. Yes. It does sound closer to what we have come to know as Charlie's aesthetic. Yes. The songs are still cliche. The lyrics are still humiliating. <laughs> but there are moments on the record that feel like Charlie Puth as we've come to know him, as opposed to the auto-tunes, which is just like an alien from another planet. I think on this, you can look at a track like Look At Me Now, which is the first track on Ego, and 
you can sort of see the glimmer of his abilities. There's the pop structure and there's yeah. interesting elements to it. But then there's songs like In the Dark, which is like a weird rapping song. She's spending every other night alone Cause all the mother guys are blowing up her phone But she really doesn't know how good it could be If she rearranged her plans and made them with me He still has no idea what he's doing But he's throwing things against the wall And some of them are starting to stick So this feels like a good stopgap for where he's heading here When you say Charlie's aesthetic as we come to know it today What would you describe that as? What is Charlie's aesthetic that he's circling or beginning to circle here? I think really crisp and confident pop Songs. songs with urgency, songs with hooks that are undeniably sticky, yes. lyrics that are not overcomplicated and sort of get right to the point. Kind of elegantly so, actually, when he gets really good at it. That's the funny thing about the I Suck at Writing Lyrics conceit. I actually think, I mean, elegant may be a stretch, but there's a sense of real economy. He knows how to remove the clutter and create the exact right lyrical content to convey what he wants to and not ruin the popness of the whole thing. Exactly. I think you can see the fingerprints of that aesthetic that we're talking about here on this Ego EP. I would not recommend listening to the Ego EP. It's terrible, but... I know what you mean, though. I wrote at Look At Me Now that overblown, bright, heavy drum programming. You can tell that someone sat on Ableton and just fucking spent days and days and days making that sound that crispy. Mm -hmm. That really feels very signature to Charlie. Every instrument honed in this obsessive studio rat kind of way. And I think as we get into his better music, we can talk about the ways that I feel like he is so amazing at having everything sound perfect and having the exact right amount of things in the mix and not a thing too much, not a thing too little. He has a real facility with that kind of stuff. So I can see what you're talking about in terms of that. What do you think about him in terms of his use of pastiche or past pop forms? Do you see him in that mold? I mean, a name that came up for me a lot in thinking about Charlie is Bruno. Bruno's obviously signature pastiche. Every song is a clear reference to a past other version of a song. Does Charlie sort of do a version of that in your mind, or do his songs sound starkly contemporary to you? How does he interface with those ideas? I think he is a nostalgist in a lot of ways. You could see that on Nine Track Mind for sure. Right. Especially with all the doo-wop underpinnings of that record, yeah. which does not feel genuine to him, but... I think moving into an album like Voice Notes, you can really, like we were talking about earlier, you can really hear the influence shining through, the R&B, the neo-soul, yes. the hip-hop and funk elements that really contribute to the success of that record. So I do think that he incorporates that kind of stuff and he employs it effectively. But the records don't feel like Bruno Mars songs when they're at their best. They feel like... They draw inspiration from that, but they feel like thoroughly modern, contemporary records to me for the most part when I listen to them, even though they're obviously culling from ideas from the past for the most part. I mean, sometimes like on that Boys to Men song, he's going for like a sheer recreation. But a lot of his best songs, I feel like somehow feel both nostalgic and also thoroughly contemporary at the same time. Yeah, I think the difference between Charlie Puth and Bruno Mars in comparison to the way that they acknowledge their inspirations on record 
is Charlie is a master at transforming certain conventions and sounds and really shoehorning it into a pop template, whereas Bruno Mars is doing pantomime and doing it at the highest professional and creative level, where when he puts out a new Jack Swing record, that's a new Jack Swing record. That sounds like it could have been done by New Edition. Exactly. I think that's where the difference in paying homage to your inspirations really differs to these types of artists. I agree. Pantomime is a great word for Bruno Mars, I have to say. All right, so he releases this other single, Love, in 2014, which is this trap house kind of like one dance, sorry thing, but before each of them, actually, a year before both of those songs, but really reminded me of those songs. And he also, in 2014, wrote the Pitbull song, Celebrate. <laughs> Which sounds like a very Pitbull song from 2014. It like interpolates rare earths. I just want to celebrate and is a fucking EDM banger. I don't know what he wrote on that song per se, because it just feels like everything that's not Pitbull is just the I just want to celebrate interpolation. But I think that was his first major credit, right? It was his first major credit. I think from there, he really starts to get into songwriting and production, which is what he wanted to do. He's talked about this. Right. He worked on Bonnie McKee's California Winter. Mm -hmm. He worked on Trey Song's Slow Motion. He worked on Jason Derulo tracks. He's really sort of spreading himself out and really establishing him as a songwriter. I think Bonnie McKee attempted the same thing. And it's sort of ironic that they worked together because it's like Bonnie McKee got her foundational start as a songwriter for Katy Perry and Britney Spears. And her end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she always wanted to be the star and it never really happened in a way that we saw happen with Charlie Puth. So it's kind of funny that they crossed over at the point where it was clear Bonnie was not going to happen, but... Charlie was at the point where it looked like it was about to start happening. And at this point, Bonnie's a way bigger songwriter than Charlie is. I mean, Bonnie at this point is the songwriter. In terms of writing for other people, Bonnie McKee, song for song, blows Charlie Puth out of the water. Charlie does not have the resume. No, I don't think Pitbull Celebrate is going down in history, I gotta be honest with you. (laughs) Well, some of Charlie's do, but regardless. Charlie's career really changes forever because of a weird fluke, which is Paul Walker's death, essentially. He is the speed demon who rose to fame in the Fast and Furious blockbusters. And now, this real-life twist that all too closely mirrors the movies he made. We have confirmed two DUAs. This morning, new details in the joyride that ended in a fiery crash taking actor Paul Walker's life. There's the song See You Again, which becomes the soundtrack lead single from the Fast and the Furious movie that comes out. That is the last appearance by Paul Walker as he died tragically in a car accident after the movie was shot. I think it was during because I saw the final scene and they CGI him in it. Yeah. But he's in the rest of the movie. So I assume it happened at some point during filming. So how does See You Again, which is a Wiz Khalifa song featuring Charlie Puth that ends up being a gigantic number one smash come together? And how would you describe this record? See You Again was a track that Charlie had recorded as a reference track. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. We've come a long way from where we began. Oh, I'll tell you 
that he wrote when he was 23. It went to Trey Songz. He cut a version. It went to Chris Brown. He also cut a version. But they didn't really quite capture Charlie's experience per Charlie Puth himself. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they just took the reference track and they kept it on the song. Mm. And this is really his first huge hit, period. And his first hit, really. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, Charlie Puth more or less did not exist in the general public's mind unless you were some sort of YouTube obsessive before this happened. Or you happened to like the Ellen show. Yeah, the casual pop listener did not know who Charlie Puth was at this point. He comes bursting onto the scene with this song that is absolutely inescapable, a monster hit. Yes. And it sets his career into full throttle. Yes. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again, when I see you again. Damn. So how would you describe what this song is? Why is this song such a smash? Is it just the Paul Walker connection? Because my reaction, I remember hearing this song, was I despised this song when it was huge. I think it is the most saccharine, sappy thing. And I think many people still to this day think of Charlie Puth and associate him with the feeling of this song, which to me is a stitched together, really sappy ode to seeing somebody again after they die, I guess. How would you describe this record? I completely agree. At first time I heard it, I was like, oh my God, this is the worst. Yes. And I still think that it's a horrible song. It is. It's musically cliche. The lyrics are really cringy and a little too earnest to the point where it's encroaching on embarrassment. Mm -hmm. I feel like the sentiment is genuine. Agree. And he sells it, whatever his claims are about why they kept him on the song. I can understand why. As could I. I wouldn't discredit his sentiment and the genuine appeal of the song, but at its core, it's a cliche. The whole song is. Yes. The reason that the song, I think, really connects is Paul Walker is an American sweetheart at this point. When Paul dies, it's on par probably for movie fans as Aaliyah's death maybe was for music fans. Mm. Just this mm -hmm. total sweetheart who had such a bright future. You could really see that they were hitting their stride and were going to hit that next level. And so when Paul Walker dies, it's an American tragedy in a way. And just like with any of these major celebrities or athletes who die in the public eye, we as Americans and as a culture come together to mourn them. And oftentimes we need a focal point for that. And I think it was very smart from a marketing perspective for this song to be that focal point. Yeah. It had the sentimentality of an in memoriam. <laughs> it's like made for that. It spoke in broad platitudes about loss and remembrance and all of these things. And it came at just the right time. I mean, you could not have strategize this better. And I hate referring to it as strategy, but it's a music business. Of course, there was a strategy here. Oh, hell yeah. It stinks of that. I mean, you listen to this and you just hear marketing strategy. I mean, first of all, Wiz Khalifa. I mean, this is not Wiz Khalifa Pop Pantheon, but like <laughs> my eyes could not roll harder into the back of my head. But I will say this, voice pure, clean, clear as a whistle. His voice is really amazing. I mean, he can fucking sing. And he sounds so good on this song. But exactly what you said, it's like you got the America's Sweetheart death. You've got a movie franchise that is absolutely beloved. You have the craziness of the fact that Paul Walker died doing what happens in the movie. So all of this to say is Charlie Puth's establishing fame moment feels very flukish to me. Like you could see another timeline where this doesn't happen and Charlie Puth's career doesn't happen as a result. Does that seem fair? I think that's totally fair. I think he accidented into being on the song and then the song accidented into 
to being the hit that it was. Right. I mean, all the cards were put in the right place, but that song could not have existed without the context from which it was birthed. Totally. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. So does this song make Charlie Puth a star? I mean, we were literally just doing an episode on Kim Petras and we were talking about how we don't feel like Unholy has necessarily like made Kim Petras a superstar. Does this make Charlie Puth a star? I think at that point, Wiz Khalifa really was hitting his stride. This was, I think, if we're going to be generous enough to call it an imperial phase, this was Wiz Khalifa's imperial yeah. phase. He's coming off the yeah. back of Black and Yellow, yeah. which was one of the biggest hip-hop records of the 2010s. Yeah. So I think... Wiz is the star of the song, and Charlie is the supporting character, much in a sense that Sam Smith and Kim Petras has that same tiered framing that we have experienced as a culture. But I don't think that this positions Charlie as a one to watch. I don't think we're clamoring to figure out who Charlie is. He just sounds really nice on the record, and now we know that he exists. But he doesn't have any of the music to back up the rest of it. He doesn't have a sound. He doesn't have a persona. This record has no sound. That's the thing that I kept thinking to myself. I was like, how would I even describe what this sounds like? It is just a pop song in the most generic way that you could think about a pop song. There's nothing you can say about it. And I have the opposite feeling about it, Stephen, which is that Charlie's the only thing that makes this record work for me. I listen to the Wiz parts and I'm like, this could be any other person, any other rapper, and I wouldn't give two shits who it was. I could- Completely agree. I don't even remember Wiz's parts from it. Me neither. Zero. Couldn't tell you one part of it. I mean, the hook, while absolutely disgustingly cloying, is extremely memorable. Of course. It feeds into the effectiveness of the record. It justifies its popularity. I mean, that song was all over the radio. I think it broke a YouTube record. Yeah. I kind of understand why, even though I hate it. Yeah. It's a lovable, hateable record. It's radio fodder in the worst sense of that word. Absolutely. The success of the song leads to him getting a fast tracked debut album which is Stephen, explain this to me it's called nine track mind but there are 12 songs on it why how i don't understand that anyway <laughs> let's talk about this record nine track mind that gets put down in 2016 now i want to preface this by saying that charlie has as Stephen alluded to earlier disavowed this album as well he has said quote it wasn't like i was reading bad reviews and going why are they saying these things i got it loud and clear the critics beat me to my own words sure that's really easy to say in retrospect the reviews of this thing i just want to share a couple little notes i pulled out on this Gia Tolentino in Pitchfork, which gave it a 2.7, wrote in the opening sentence of her review, quote, There are 12 tracks on Charlie Puth's debut album, Nine Track Mind, which is either three or 12 too many. (laughs) I actually pulled out a quote from that review, too, where she was saying, Puth cannot fill this frame of sentimentality with any genuine sentiment. Mm. Shout out to Gia. She really nailed that one. She did. I pulled out more quotes of hers. This whole review, literally, everyone should go back and read it. Of course, Gia fucking slayed it. 
So let's talk about what's going on in this record. How would you describe what Charlie Puth sounds like, what he's talking about, what this music sounds like, how he represents himself as an artist here? It's ballad schlockery, right? Yeah. It's a bunch of ballads. He cribs the Megan Trainer approach because she's having this enormous popularity right now with all about that bass and lips are moving and that doo Motown ushered into the era. So he kind of takes the same approach. We hear that on Marvin Gaye, yeah. which is quite obviously a duet with Megan. It could not be more transparent. Let's Marvin Gaye and get it on. You got the healing that I want. Just like they say in the song. Till the dawn, let's Marvin Gaye and get it on. But the rest of it is mostly just generic block. They position him as a lovey-dovey boy next door which doesn't necessarily even come off as convincing no it sounds fake and forced yes there are so many awkward moments <laughs> i pulled out a few of the lyrics from the record that just gave me the ick please one call away obviously the single which actually did quite well despite how generic and bland it is he says i'll be there to save the day superman got nothing on me i wrote that one too. Oof, that's so cringy And then another one on As You Are, which is a song about being in love with a girl. And he says, for you, I could climb Mount Kilimanjaro a thousand times. Oh, boy. In the chorus. Oh, boy. It's a slap on the brain, just really <laughs> dark stuff. Also on Marvin Gaye, not to belabor the lyrical content, but he does say it's Kama Sutra show and tell on Marvin Gaye. We talked about Ariana not being able to pull off being genuine about sex. Yeah. Charlie Puth can 1000% not pull it off on this record, and he attempts and fails. I mean, the lyric, let's Marvin Gaye and get oh, it on, oh. is truly I literally wrote yuck with 10,000 Ks <laughs> next to it. Oh, God. One of the reviews of the record talks about Marvin Gaye is like a song by two people who have never heard a Marvin Gaye song. It does have that feeling. There's something so anodyne about the whole thing. It's like glee core or something like that. Oh, absolutely. And I did keep thinking about Bruno because in this guise, I do feel like we're getting more of that pastiche thing, but he's not doing it as well as Bruno or convincingly as Bruno on this record. It is just so generic neutered. There's no personality on any of this music. The only song to me that really like registers to me is the Selena Gomez song, We Don't Talk Anymore. Yeah, same exact vibe here. The only song worth salvaging. Yeah, so let's talk about this song. So first of all, there's some hits here. I mean, Marvin Gaye hits number 21 and goes number one in the UK. One Call Away goes number 12 here. And then We Don't Talk Anymore, the third single, is a top 10 hit in America. Let's talk about We Don't Talk Anymore and why this record maybe is a bit of a glimmer of a path forward for Charlie. What's happening here? It's a sore thumb on this record. It doesn't sound like the rest of the record whatsoever. Right. It sounds way more aligned with the sound that he establishes on Voice Notes, which is the record that comes after this. Totally. He opens the space up a lot more and there's Spanish inflection guitars and it's this mid-tempo-y vibe. He really creates this comforting pop R&B hybrid mm -hmm. that really is driven by this incredibly catchy but simple melodic force behind it. Oh, 
my brain Oh, it's such a shame We don't talk anymore And having Selena Gomez on there, it's such an uncomplicated song. So it makes sense that he gets such an uncomplicated singer to join him on it. Yes. It functions in its comfort. And I think because of that, it stands as one of his most breezy confections up to this point, possibly the most breezy, if we want to put it that way. Yeah. It's a little Robin Thicke lost without you sort of vibes. Yeah. Which is a high compliment. I mean, that is an incredible song. There's a little sexiness to it. It actually is one of the only songs where Charlie. Charlie Puth's specific sort of sex appeal, which I do think does come across more in his future music, starts to kind of clock. Because the rest of this music, I feel no feeling, I feel no sex, I feel no heat, I feel nothing. And I also don't feel the sense of his titanic songwriting and production abilities, which feel like such an important part of it. This music feels so generic outside of that song to me. It just feels like nothingness. And in thinking about the reception, I mean, I talked about, there's three hits off of this album. I mean, this album does well. It actually debuts at number six it sells a couple million copies so it's pretty successful but i remember and i'm curious what you think about this i remember being completely disengaged from this as a pop consumer i don't think i had even heard marvin gay or one call away or maybe even the selena gomez song or if i did i memory hold them until i was prepping for this and remembering these songs because i just remember being like this guy sucks fucking ass what was your perception of this I totally agree. Especially being in the journalism world, you get pitched a lot of artists and you really support and write about the ones who you're engaged with. Right. And the number of times Charlie Puth came up and I said, absolutely fucking not, was innumerable because he was just such a toothless, and basic guy. Yes. You also have to think at the time that pop music was coming out of its electronic era, if you want to put it that way. Right, right. And the records that were huge that year, Uptown Funk was number one. I feel like that was right. a little bit of a novelty in retrospect, because when you look at the rest of it, it's like Taylor Swift with 1989, Ariana with My Everything, Beyonce with Beyonce, Adele with 25. Pop music was largely dominated by women who were making incredible, compelling music that was driving the narrative of what pop culture was at the time. Right. Pop men weren't quite as prominent this year. I mean, you had right. Uptown Funk, you had Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud and The Weeknd's... Can't Feel My Face. Exactly. Him entering his Max Martin phase. Right. And then Justin Bieber, who's the biggest star in the world. These are four artists who are making compelling, patchy, envelope-pushing music. And Charlie Puth is here on the outskirts just wading into mediocrity and somehow filling that niche on radio where people want the music that they've come to expect, that generic familiarity that we weren't getting with records like What Do You Mean mm -hmm. and Sorry. You're talking about a series of incredibly personality-driven pop phenomenons. This music strikes me as there are pop stars that do this where it's like you can have hit after hit after hit and you don't register as a person. I mean, I've said this about B.B. Rexa a million times. She can have 3,000 hits. I mean, B.B. Rexa's got fucking hits, right? But she is no star. Nobody knows who she is. Nobody cares when her record comes out. That's what Charlie Puth felt like to me at this stage. Just somebody that was making music for the radio that just didn't have any personality and didn't serve any function. And then I think your point's interesting about the state of pop at this particular moment, which was kind of like a flux moment because we had just been coming off of a moment where every pop star was operating in a similar milieu, which was the EDM dance pop thing, which was Vice Grip, 
on pop for like four or five years there. And then you have this kind of middle period where it's like Beyonce, what she was doing on record sounds incredibly different from Purpose, which sounds incredibly different from Adele, which sounds incredibly different from 1980. I mean, these are all incredibly different sounding albums and have a real POV. You can really think about those records and go, oh, they were playing with these elements. And again, you just listen to this and it's just like radio sludge. There's no sense of perspective. There's no POV. There's nothing to sink your teeth into on this music at all, aside from just serviceable radio fodder is the best thing that you could say about it. Exactly. All right. So does Charlie Puth come out of a handful of successful songs here? a star? How would you characterize his celebrity post all of this stuff? People know who Charlie Puth is now, and we've definitely all enjoyed one of his songs at this point. For us, like we discussed, We Don't Talk Anymore is probably the one for us. When I heard that, I was like, oh, I hate Charlie Puth, but this song definitely has a vibe to it. I think people are aware of him. I don't think he has reached even at the Sean Mendez level at this point. Sean Mendez at that point, I think, was just at the baby phase, but he had this sort of fervor around him that previewed how big he was eventually going to become. I don't think we saw that with Charlie Puth. I had no idea that he was going to continue in the path that he was going. No. And I still think there's a lot of people that think of Charlie Puth as See You Again and then some of these songs that were big radio hits. Because these are still probably his biggest hits. I mean, maybe Attention. Essentially, See You Again and these three songs are probably to many people what Charlie Puth's musical output is. Yeah, it does feel like there's a divide between people who know Charlie pre-voice notes and people who know him post-voice notes. (laughs) Right, exactly. So let's talk about that. So in 2017, a year after this record, Charlie drops the song Attention. And this is the song that, in my mind, essentially is where Charlie Puth that I love and care about is born. Let's first talk about what Attention sounds like and how he reorients his approach to songwriting, production, what this record sounds like. How would you describe Attention and why does this feel like the introduction to an entirely new artist, do you think? He takes an entirely different approach to this record. I mean, he worked with Jacob Tasker on this, who is a pretty prominent songwriter and producer. And it feels like he has matured in this time frame quicker than it takes to go through puberty. It's so fast how he sheds the boy next door vibe of nine track mind and embraces his adulthood by infusing his music with a little bit of danger and a little bit of sexiness. Mm-hmm. You can hear that on attention. Attention sounds like a song that he's talking about personal experience. He's been wronged, he's hurt, but he sort of catches it in this really mature dressed up and entirely musically compelling coat that just feels natural to him. It could have gone two ways. He could have just kept making generic garbage, but this really took a chance. And because he's such a master of pop songwriting and production, it translates. This song is an epiphany. That's a great way to put it. You just want attention. You don't want my heart. Maybe you just hate the thought of me with someone all of a sudden there's so much emotional complexity to this record i kept thinking about billy jean which i think is the reference point here with that driving bass line 
but there's this sense of the sort of sleaze, sadness, darkness, paranoia, but sort of cut by the purity of his vocal. There's this real layered sense of complexity to what's going on here. He is wronged and you feel empathetic with him and yet you also register him as also sort of a little bit of a sleazebag and you get a real sense of place and setting. You really get the sense of LA, girls looking for attention, guys, how much he wants the girls with attention, how much they're fucking him over, but he can't resist it. It's this really complicated and really nice lyric writing on this. I pulled out, I know that dress is karma, perfume regret. What a great lyric. Yeah, I caught that too, actually. It's such a good one. And the production on this thing, Steven, I mean, it's so fucking good. I mean, that snaking serpentine bass line and the way that it's kind of that anti-drop thing that it builds up and kind of gives you that EDM feeling that you're about to get a drop and then just drops into this snaking, funky bass line that's essentially the entirety of the production on the chorus. I mean, it is so economical. It sounds so good. It sounds so good. And now I'm all up on you, what you expect. But you're not coming home with me tonight. You just want attention. You don't want my heart. The production on this, I would put up there as one of my favorite productions of this time period. It slaps. I mean, literally slaps, slaps, slaps. Yeah, literally slaps. Yes, he does things with this track that we had never heard from him before and were not popular in music, especially with pop music at that time, you know. We're in our Taylor Swifty pop era where we get these big bombastic yeah. punch in the face records or really catchy, snappy ones. And yeah. instead of him going big, like you said, it just cuts out and just falls into this one critic described it as slick and groove injected, which sounds a little lazy to me, but it does capture that sentiment. It's just that pop, that funk, that really snapping groove that gets your attention, pun unintended, but it quite literally grabs your attention. It accomplishes what the song title sets out. Yeah. And there's a real sense of drama. I love the buildup into the last chorus where he goes, I got you thinking back when you were mine. Music cuts out. Yep. This little pant. It's like... And then the last chorus drops in and I'm like, is that pant panic? Is that pant sexual frenzy? There's a lot of intrigue on this thing. It's a really fascinating song and very singular. I can't tell you this song sounds like anything else in particular that's happening at the time. Maybe a little bit The weekend. I don't know. It is so good. I cannot stress to you enough how much I love this song. I think also this is the first song where we really get Charlie at his best vocally. I think this is the album and this is the song in particular where he starts playing with the force of his voice. Mm. He has a very gifted vibrato, the way that he sort of clinches his throat at the end of a word in the same way that Post Malone does to great effect. I would give him incredible credit for that. Yes. Charlie has sort of that same dynamic of his voice and that ability, and he starts to employ it more as a musical tool, but also as an emotional part of his toolbox. Yes, right. He can deliver the lyric with so much more force and intrigue when he adds that tremor at the end of the line. Yes. You got me thinking about when you were mine. But beyond that, combined with the fact that he's playing with the force of how he's delivering it, it sounds like he can be singing in like a quiet, almost whisper, which creates the sense of vulnerability. Mm. And then he can just explode with it on the chorus and it really packs that punch. I mean, Attention is really the first record we're getting that mastery of his vocal and 
if you go back and listen to Otto, you can sort of see he has no control over that. And just in eight years, he's absolutely mastered it. And it shines through through the rest of the record. This is mastery on every level. We overuse the term student of pop or whatever in this program. But every part of this song, you could teach it in a school. Every drum kick, every vocal intonation, it is just perfection. Perfection. So this song is a huge hit. It's his biggest hit yet. It hits number five here. It hits number nine in the UK. This is a big record. Record. Let's talk about the rest of Voice Notes. What is happening on the rest of this record that is either building on or expanding the world that we get on attention? I think for the most part, this record is an incredible body of work. I mean, if you follow me on social media, you know I've beaten the drum for years. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> there are perfect pop songs on this record. Perfect. From front to back. Many of them. Many of them. But I think what makes it so charming and makes Charlie such an endearing character is that he still gives in to his proclivities to write these cliche, override, awful songs. He has no compass for what makes something good in his universe. <laughs> versus something that doesn't function elsewhere. Yeah. To speak to the songs that are just absolutely bonkers good, I know we share a common bond over Boy, which yes. I think is maybe his best song. Ugh. There are songs like Somebody Told Me, L.A. Girls, Done For Me, with Kehlani is just an absolute delight. Yeah. You know I've given this everything, baby, honestly, baby, honestly. such an incredible record. He takes everything he's learned and centers it in this one sonic universe and bangs out perfect song after perfect song using every single thing he has in his toolkit and incorporating things from R&B and absolutely seamlessly integrating them into this pop format. And it just pays off. I feel like there's a real world of this record, especially in the first half of it. There's this real sense of a story about a guy that's moved to LA that is pursuing pop stardom, pop songwriting, whatever. And he's both allured by the mystique of the entertainment industry and the women that he's meeting in that world and is being sort of pummeled and ruined by them. I mean, that is kind of the world that you get on this and you get that sense of the allure and the sleaze is something that I kept thinking of. You have a track like L.A. Girl, which is very much a song sung from the perspective of an East Coast transplant who has moved to L.A. and is enjoying the spoils of moving westward, but also is now feeling like they are kind of waking up with a hangover or something. That's a feeling that I get a lot on this record. It's interesting because he also, I feel like, positions himself as both the perpetrator and the perpetrated. Sometimes in back-to-back songs, there's a lot of contradiction on here. You have a song like L.A. Girls, again, where he's talking about getting cheated on, right? That's essentially the vibe. And then you've got a song like How Long, where he actually sings from the girl's perspective about him cheating.
And then similarly, you have a one-two punch later in the record, which is Boy, which again, I think should have its own moment, which is about him fucking an older woman who won't take him seriously because he's younger, followed by the next song, Slow It Down, in which he's fucking a younger woman and he's grappling. He has a really honest vibe about him in his lyrics about the complexities of what he feels about fucking this younger woman and how he's into it and he finds her really hot but at the same time there's responsibility that he feels like comes with it my life is complicated she's only 23 i'm not the guy that she's supposed to love oh the more that i tell her i'm not staying over the harder she makes it to go The faster she takes off her clothes He's in his head and you really get a sense of his inner monologue and his conflict and he's got a real sense of self-awareness weirdly enough about his inner life that makes these songs really interesting and compelling beyond just being perfectly crafted pop records. I think he really plays to his vulnerability in a way that is so emotionally mature. Like you said, that one-two punch of boy and slow it down and that contradictory situation that he's in is brilliant sequencing. But then two songs later, there's somebody told me where he's in a relationship with a girl and he catches wind from someone that she's cheating on him and then he discovers that she's doing it. But just these tiny details that he brings up in the song really paints the picture of how vulnerable he is. I think on that song, he sings, I was just with you on your birthday and I met your whole family, but on the way home, you kept looking at your phone. It's just like, that's cinematic to me. I know exactly what that situation looks like. Yeah. I was just with you on your birthday and I met your whole family, but on the way home, you kept looking at your phone. Couldn't help but ask who's that babe? And the way you said nobody, I knew the rules. He's good at that. The world building of the lyrics without feeling like he's trying that hard is really impressive. It's casual. And I feel like that's what makes this album so successful is that it is casual. Yes. That casualness couched in perfection and exactness and that pop one, two, three, four that Max Martin likes to talk about. Yes. He manages to infuse that casual vibe with technical prowess and it coalesces in this really digestible and lovely way. You know what it is? It's so interesting, Stephen. It's breezy to listen to, but you'd feel fulfilled by it. It's an interesting, hard to strike balance where it's incredibly fun to listen to and never feels like it's too much. But at the same time, you feel fed. It's a very difficult balance to strike on these kinds of albums. And he hits it very well on so many of these songs. Let's also talk about some of the production touchstones. I mean, do you want to talk about Boy for a second? What are the sort of sonic aesthetic textures and inspirations you feel like he's pulling from here. Boy reminds me of Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Oh, good, yes. That pitter-pattering, feet clapping on the ground, tapping your toes, urgency. Mm. And the lyrics of the song, like you mentioned, it's just such a strange conceit to hear a male pop singer talking about being with an older woman. And also in that situation, wanting to be with the older woman and her not wanting to reciprocate that, that is a conceit that we have not really heard.
that already sets the tone of something a little weird and different. But so him, so him. You can so see him in this scenario, right? Exactly. I believe him when he sings this. Yeah. As opposed to Nine Track Mind, I didn't believe a fucking word of that album. No. But this is such a weirdly specific situation that there's no way he's lying about it. No way. And he's very believable both as the object of a cougar and then also as the older guy that's sort of cute and sensitive, but still also maybe stepping too far with girls that are younger than him. He works as both of those things for me. Yeah, exactly. I think what really sells the song for me and what makes it a perfect pop song is the interplay of time measurement and melody. The instrumental is just this constantly one, two, three, four. But the way that he approaches the melody and the delivery in time signature, he's playing against that in a way that creates a sense of imbalance, even though the song is perfectly architected. And now you watch me put in all this work just to say it won't work out. It never took me seriously. And I think because of that, it's almost a little disorienting, but because the melody, it ascends, it goes up the scale, and he keeps going higher and higher, the payoff is just so satisfying. I could listen to that song a million times over. Me too, a billion times. This is a very LA album to me. It was this album I hear Los Angeles for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, he moved out to Los Angeles to become a songwriter. So it feels like he's been in LA for a while, but even him, he sort of talked about how Nine Track Mind was an album that he didn't feel like was an accurate representation of himself, mainly because the label was chasing a hit. And he was sort of pressured into delivering this record that didn't feel like him. So we now are getting the first experience of witnessing how Charlie Puth navigates L.A. as a young, straight, white guy who lives in the Hollywood Hills in a huge house that Furious 7 paid for. Yeah. And he has all these super hot girls who treat him like shit, probably because he's a sleaze bag. But he conveys that with such vulnerability and sentimentality that we sympathize with him. It's really clever. Yes, I mean, the song Patient, I think, really encapsulates that feeling. He sings with such earnestness and vulnerability about being a fuckboy. You can imagine what the woman is experiencing on the other end of this song. The whole conceit of the song is, please be patient with me. I know I'm not what you want. I'm going to get there kind of thing. And you're just thinking from her perspective what this must be like. But then you listen to the song and you just really empathize with him and his journey. And again, he has a really profound sense of his his own inner life and it's really interesting to listen to. I think one of the stunning moments on this album that is worth talking about is the Boys to Men song, If You Ever Leave Me, which is like the most obvious pastiche, I think, on this record, but is a real testament to his skill as a song crafter because he literally nails the sound of these 90s R&B records and he sounds like he fits in with the premier vocalist group of the 90s. This song is a testament to Charlie's growth, I think, through all of these time periods that he's able to pull this song off, I think is very impressive. The thing is, though, like we were talking about with Bruno Mars, is that it doesn't feel like pantomime. It almost feels like he has invited Boisman into his world. Yes. It scans correct to me that this song's featuring boys to men because Charlie's really the one driving it. And it feels like 
the arrangement, the fact that it's all a cappella, it still fits into the sonic universe that Charlie's created with voice notes. And that sort of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Charlie is a master of incorporating and absorbing what he's learned from other genres into this pop world that he has created. Yeah. Cause girl, if you leave me now If you give it up and just walk right out You won't take the biggest part of me And all the things that I A real sense of restraint. I can't get over the economical nature of this music. He is so good at picking sounds and honing them into perfection, and everything in the mix is just right where it's supposed to be. I mean, that is some sort of instinctual genius. He really has that going on. The other song that we just have to talk about before we exit the voice notes conversation is Empty Cups. I mean, Empty Cups is the classic. Come on, Steven. <laughs> this song is so fucking good. I don't have anything that profound to say about it, except that I think this is a literal perfect pop song. It's a perfect pop song. What else can you say? I don't know what else there is to say about it. I just wrote in my notes, this man makes perfect songs. I would say that with this record, we could forget about change. We can forget about Through It All, which closes the record. Oh, Through It All, no. It's just schlocky. It sounds like nine-track mind garbage. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, this is just wow. Made me an instant Charlie Puth fan. I was shocked. I still am shocked that I love this album so much and also have so much to say about it. <laughs> oh, what a treat to listen to this. I love when I get to these records whenever I'm doing these deep dives and I'm just like, I could listen to this 300 million times yep. and be so happy. I love this album. Like, I love, love, love this album. I even love it for its stupider songs. That's the sign to me of when a record is really my shit. It's so good that even the songs I don't like, I weirdly still have a soft spot for. Even though I'm probably going to skip that James Taylor song when it comes on, I don't care. I'm like, take your James Taylor song. Yeah, you needed to get that out of your system. Yeah, whatever, man. You deserve it. This album is so good. So the thing that's interesting about it is that none of these other songs really pop, pop, pop off like Attention does in a commercial sense. Where does this record leave Charlie? What is the critical reception like? How does this record position Charlie Puth in the broader pop space in your mind? This is sort of where Charlie becomes a pop star in the sense that we know him. Right. I think it breaks him out of anonymity. It establishes him as a tour de force, especially when it comes to songwriting and production and performance. All the stuff about him being a child prodigy suddenly makes a lot of sense because he's managed to employ it all effectively. I think critically, the album is received very well compared to Nine Track Minds. I think a lot of critics have the same surprise reaction that you and I had, which is yeah. I didn't realize he could exist at this caliber. No. And I saw it tangibly. I went to the Voice Notes tour, and it was a lot of people around our age. I was at the Greek Theater, and I know Ira Madison, who's been a guest on this podcast, he was there. It's people around our age who are into music and understand what it takes to make good pop music. And we're not stands in a traditional sense. We sort of bypass that stan era. Right. This is the album for us. Sure. Because it allows us to enjoy it. 
without having to buy into the whole narrative of who the artist is. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that I get that he's a bigger artist than these artists that I'm about to name because he has actual hit music, but he does occupy the same space that a Charlie or a Carly or a Robin or someone occupies where this record still felt like a secret. It still does feel like a secret. Despite the fact that Attention was a huge hit, this album still feels like something that I am constantly turning people on to. And I do think it serves in that same way where it's like, nobody's getting this. This album is really good. People should really be into this. So it's weird because Attention's a big hit. But at the same time, I feel like this record does establish him as everything that you're saying with the music intelligentsia and perhaps some niche pop fans. But it doesn't feel like it really gets nearly the level of attention that it deserved in terms of how good it is and how fun to listen to it is. In an alternate universe, this could have had so many hits, it seems like to me. I completely agree. This album doesn't reach its full potential, which is disappointing. Yeah. But it does create a space for Charlie to excel and proceed as a pop star. It doesn't turn him into a Bieber, but maybe it does reach its full potential in terms of what is really necessary for pop stardom in the modern day, which is creating a silo where you can do what you want and people will love it. I mean, that seems more what is the imperative of pop stardom today, to me, is find a niche, make it as big as possible, because even the biggest pop stars are somewhat niche to me in some ways today, and create a situation where you can just keep making good cool music that your fans like maybe this was an effective move in that way even though it wasn't making him into Justin Bieber yeah I think he succeeds where we see a lot of our niche legends succeed which is he created a micro group of fans that are now hooked into him I'm not the biggest fan of his most recent album but I still listen to it because voice notes made me part of that fan group and I feel like it did it for a lot of the people who experienced the record and took a chance on it too I think it should be mentioned that people People likely did not give voice notes a chance because of how bad Nine Track Mind was. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't have unless somebody fucking told me to. Exactly. I think Nine Track Mind did such a poor job of conveying to us and selling us on who Charlie is that there was no pull or draw or interest towards whatever came after that, especially coming off of the radio run that he had with Nine Track Mind, where it's like, well, he already had his run of hits. Do we really need to care about what comes next, especially with a sophomore album? Probably not. I think all those things sort of played against him as he went through this era. So before we get to talking about Charlie's third record that came out last year, I feel like one of the things that has defined his persona in pop in recent times has been this pivot to TikTok. Can we talk a little bit about how that's happened and what is happening there and why he is successful as a TikToker? Just kind of the general zhush of Charlie's public-facing persona as a social media entity right now. I think he comes from the social media world, as we discussed, from YouTube. And during the pandemic, he's described it as he had gone through a really bad breakup. He was no longer able to tour and connect with fans in that way because we were all at home during the pandemic. He had no sounding board for anything. Mm -hmm. And so he went into quarantine and looked at TikTok and said, I'm going to utilize this to my advantage. He created a space between him and his fans that allowed for a very fluid and conversational relationship. Him being on TikTok conveyed to us 
that he has a personality yeah. beyond the music. Because at that point, I don't think we really understood who Charlie was, what he was really into. Right. And so on his end, it was an opportunity for him to showcase how his brain works as a musician. We talk about voice notes and how technical of an album that is. We don't really know the machinations of what inspired that and how that sort of came to be. Right. So going into the pandemic, he turns to his TikTok and he starts opening people up to his creative process. What if there was a song that started off like boop, 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 and the bass went like boom, 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 and the drums would go like there's something missing. There should be like a weird sound effect. Just a random noise or something like that. Here, let me turn this light on. Oh my God. Okay, I know this is really, really weird, but I just wanna, there. Here's the light switch sound. This is actually kind of dope. I'm freaking out right now. You turn me on like a light switch. And documents it as the months go by and eventually starts to incorporate feedback from people into the music he's doing. It becomes this incredibly collaborative experience for everybody involved in a way that TikTok in particular had not been used, I think, effectively at that point. Mm. TikTok was sort of in its early phase where it was like Old Town Road was a huge hit. It was able to make hits and really put artists on the map, but I don't think you could see a lot of artists utilizing it in the same way that he did, which is as a creation tool. And so from there, we sort of got a look in his studio. We saw what he did and he started to have fun with it. That's how Light Switch came to be. And Light Switch ended up being an incredible success for him. And it all started because he posted a video fooling around in the studio with a light switch. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I think it really speaks to an important part of why we should care about Charlie Puth, which is the fact that he is literally sitting in his fucking house making these songs by himself, which is a very modern approach to making music. It's so incredible to get a peek behind the curtain and to see the way that he just sits there in his house and makes these fucking big ass sounding songs sitting in his little computer, which I've seen people do and people that know how music production works, we've seen it happen. But to get a view into how that's working, I think has been a really important part of selling why you should care about Charlie Puth because he is not your typical pop star in that way. I mean, he is literally a music nerd that is moonlighting as a pop star or something like that. He's a studio rat moonlighting as a pop star and it's really interesting to see his process and how much care and attention and inspiration goes into making every little piece of these songs it's made me appreciate them even more than I even do already. I think the other side of this that we should talk about is the sort of silly, queer, baity part of the whole <laughs> online persona. How would you describe that part of Charlie's vibe and how do you react to it as a fan and gay person? Not to air you out. Surprise, I'm a gay person. <laughs> I think there's something really charming about the way that he sort of baits all of us. I think you can take a look. We were talking about Nick Jonas earlier yeah. and his felt very opportunistic. It felt calculated mm. and a little ignorant. It made it feel like marketing, particularly to gay people, in order to secure that fan base. And we all know that gay people do not love to be pandered to. Well, we like to, but we don't like it to be explicit. Exactly. We don't like to feel like we're being made 
fools. And that's sort of what Nick Jonas did with his little tour of gay clubs in Manhattan. Right. With Charlie, he's not necessarily targeting the gay community. It just so happens that the gay community loves to take notice of this kind of thing. And he's hot. Sorry. <clears throat> I also think that part of it is that Charlie, for the majority of his career, was not looked at as a sex symbol, was not seen as attractive. Right. And suddenly he's in a phase of his career where he starts teasing out these photos. I don't know when it began. It just feels like it was always part of our cultural fabric. Yeah. <laughs> In time memoriam, Stephen, this has been part of our cultural fabric. <laughs> he starts posting these photos, and I, I'm sure on his end, he's getting an enormous reaction. That validation is instant and gratifying, and it really fucks with your head. Mm -hmm. But I think he doesn't capitalize on it in a way that feels predatory. He does it as a way, I think, to make himself feel more confident. He seems like an incredibly unconfident person based on the lyrics in his music. Yeah, right. And yeah. I feel like this is a really good way for him him to manage his self-esteem in a way that doesn't really seem to be hurting anyone. So I don't really see a lot of problems with it. It's like watching the nerd discover that maybe people are horny for them and they're kind of like, ooh, this is fun. Maybe I am hot. Like they're, they're, it has that quality to it. It's like in She's All That or any of those movies from the 2000s where it's like, oh, you take off the person's glasses and suddenly yeah. they're smoking yeah. hot. I feel yeah. like Charlie has this big reveal in some way. A hundred percent. It really does have that feeling. As much as I want to be annoyed, he is eternally kind of cute to me, unfortunately. Unfortunately. One of his biggest successes prior to releasing his third record is he writes, of course, the song Stay. The Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber song, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, he did write that. It really does sound like a Charlie song. Do you like that song? I think it's catchy as hell. Yeah. It's a testament to Charlie's ability as a songwriter. I didn't even realize it was a Charlie song or a Charlie-involved production whatsoever. He's probably going to live the rest of his life off that song, I bet. He could live his life off of See You Again. Yeah. He didn't need this. But he happened to be in the studio with Kid Leroy, and they cooked up the song in 15 minutes. One of those classic Charlie Puth, oh, it was a reference yeah. track that became a version that you hear kind of things. Yeah. It deservedly was a hit. And it also kept the heartbeat alive for him as a songwriter, because by this point, people aren't necessarily thinking of him as a songwriter for other people because his star as a solo musician has sort of taken off. Yes. So I think it really centers him back in that world of being a musician and songwriter and producer. I think it's also important to tie that into sort of this musical awakening that he's forcing on everyone through his posting on social media. Right. He is really beating you over the head with the fact that he is a absolute master of pop songwriting and theory and all that stuff in production. And he really reinforces that by tying it back to writing the song and keeping that symbiosis and narrative part of his story. All right. So Charlie released his latest record, his self-titled album, Charlie, in 2022. We went to a listening party for this and heard it in real time. Then I've listened to it fleetingly since then. I can't say that I love this album like I love voice notes, but I do like a lot of songs on it. Let's talk about what's happening on this record. I mean, we can talk about Light Switch, which is the most successful single, a song I absolutely fucking love. Maybe we'll start with that. What's happening here on Light Switch? It's really clever. Yeah. I feel like we're in the know with this record. He sort of takes an approach on a few of the other songs on this record, too, where I think us having the experience of sitting through that listening party, it was a small room with all of his dedicated fans and me and Louis standing in the back. And Charlie's sitting at a keyboard and he spends about an hour and a half 
going song by song by song on the record and explaining how each of them was written. Right. It was a very laborious yes. experience that he absolutely seemed to delight in. Oh my God, he was having the best time ever. That was the original snare, knowing that I was going to like make a beefier snare. So I think that there are moments on this record that really speak to what we find successful about Light Switch, which Light Switch is successful because there's a gimmick, but it's also really catchy and urgent and it begs to be heard again. Yeah. It has that familiarity that we sort of love about him. It's like Take On Me. It's like Hall and Oates. It's definitely got a little bit of that 80s, but also not vibe going on to it. The way that he's able to thread pastiche into the present day and not sound like Bruno Mars again. You turn me on like a light switch. And then he sort of employs those little gems of studio wizardry into the rest of the record. There's a song called Smells Like Me on the album yeah. where he's yelling into the microphone and then he goes and he auto-tunes that sound and then he incorporates that into what you hear on Smells Like Me and that's like a central sound on the record. He talks a lot about in the interview cycle for this album about how he loves to transform things into sounds that you can't necessarily identify. Right. And I think that is the ethos for the musicality of Charlie. There's not much familiarity in the sense of a slapping bass line on attention. Right. Or the synth lines on boy on voice notes. Right. This record feels a little less tangible to me mm -hmm. than the previous record. He really has entered his perfect pitch, I am a maestro era. And you hear that on songs like Left and Right featuring Young Cook of BTS, yeah. where the whole conceit of the song is that you can hear the person that he's singing about over here and then over here, but then he pans the sound to the left and then he pans the sound to the right yeah. and you can hear it in your headphones and what a trick he's pulled on us. And a lot of the album feels like that. It feels like he's really trying to impress the listener technically. Yes, I think this is a good point. And there's less of a focus on the other elements that made his previous record so strong. I think that's such a good point. The studio nerdery feels more centered here as opposed to just buttressing great songs and a really emotionally available storyline or something like that. The one song that really blew my mind, that has blown my mind a number of times, you referenced it earlier, is Charlie Be Quiet, which is really doing that. But literally when I was listening to this, I was like, this is a fucking 100 Gex song. It has these really quiet verses where he's singing as Steven was referencing in the voice note tracks in these quiet tones, really restraining his voice, creating the sense of intimacy and vulnerability. Charlie, be quiet. Don't make a sound. You got to lower the noise a little bit now. If she knows you're in love, she's gonna run, run away. 
and then there's a big fake electronic drum sound and then all of a sudden it kicks into this overblown massive punk rocky guitar and huge percussive elements to me i was like this literally sounds like this could have been on the fucking 100 gex album to me if it wasn't charlie puth singing it you know what i mean This album sounds like he came up with the idea for the song before writing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He sat down and he was like, I'm going to have a song about being quiet, but then I'm going to deliver it in different modes of fury and fervor. Yeah. It's like the studio wizardry is the point. Exactly. I think we haven't really put enough emphasis on the fact that during the pandemic, it sort of became a parlor trick his sense of perfect pitch. Mm. We start thinking about Charlie Puth as the perfect pitch guy. He goes on late night television shows, starts playing all these fun games. Can you guess what song this is from memory, what key it's in? Okay, so will you use any more sound effects in your next songs? Because <laughs> maybe if maybe if okay. this sounds good to you, maybe you can tell me even what note this is. Uh, if I were to just take a pen okay. and put it on the side, you could somehow work it into one of your songs. Sure. Okay, well, wow, this will be, is... okay, here we go. Ooh, that sounded that, bad. Okay, so that was actually two notes. If you play a C and a C sharp together, play... Yeah, so it... And it goes up the octave That's like that. crazy. So that's a minor second. So that's why fire alarms in hotels, like, are... It's a minor second because it kind of prompts you to get up and go out of the building. And uh, I'm standing up. I... <laughs> that's a stick that wears thin very quickly. And I feel like that's why Charlie... The album is not as effective because... It has that sleight of hand yes. pulling one over the listener in hopes that they don't notice. And unfortunately, it's very obvious. Yeah, but it's still fun to listen to. I mean, I definitely do not like this album as much yeah. as Voice Notes, but I had a fun time going back to this. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there are some really good songs on here. Yeah. Nothing that catches me in the same way as on Voice Notes, but it's an enjoyable listen. Except Light Switch for me. Light Switch is an A-lister for me. I love that song. Of course. Yeah. And I also feel like in terms of the reception of this, this felt like a complete and utter non-event. Despite the fact that Light Switch was a decent sized hit, I just feel like this album was completely nothing to people. If voice notes got overlooked, this felt like it got really, really no attention. Do you feel that way too? A hundred percent was not acknowledged by even casual pop fans. Yeah. He doesn't have a fan army in the traditional sense so we're not getting beaten over the head with it like we would with Renaissance or right. any of the Taylor, Midnight's, whatever. Sure. It really just comes out. Debuts at number 10, which to be honest, I'm surprised it debuted so high. Same. And then just fell off the radar almost instantly. It fell off my radar kind of instantly, honestly. To be honest, after we had gone to the listening party, the album had come out the next day. Yeah. And I maybe listened to it that day and then never listened to it again, which is a testament to its quality. Yeah. Where does all of this leave Charlie now? Where is he in his career? Where should he be situating himself commercially? Where do you see Charlie now? 2023 moving forward. He feels like a working man's musician right. and pop singer. The recording and songwriting and all that stuff is just like another day at the office. Mm -hmm. Just feels super casual. He wakes up, he goes to the studio, he works, he pumps out four songs a day, whatever it is. Yeah. And then now he's going on tour and even that feels sort of workhorsey to me where it's like, you're painting the numbers here as a pop singer 
And in terms of moving forward, I feel like that may be his functionality. I mean, he has proven to be daring musically in his career, as we heard on voice notes. He's capable of doing that. Maybe the next record is him trying to recapture that magic by trying something different, Mm -hmm. sort of breaking out of the social media transparency with creation and that collaboration with fans and really getting dictated by fans what works and what doesn't. Maybe the next step is reclaiming the artistry that he conveyed on voice notes and finding a new lane for his pop expertise to flourish in. One can only hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. Where do we see Charlie Puth fitting into the Pop Pantheon? Do you have a sense of what tier he belongs in? Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be mad if I said that he is a tier four artist. I think that's correct. The way you even described him as the workhorse, I just feel like he fits so well into that. He's famous. He's around. He can probably stumble into a hit from time to time. He's been around almost 10 years at this point in the public eye. He's kind of famous. The songs have so many streams. I mean, the streaming is really impressive. Like, Light Switch, that song's had so many fucking streams. He's like a big deal. But at the same time, he feels completely not in the A-list tier of pop stardom at all. It's exactly that blue-collar pop musician label applies so fittingly here. I agree. To the point where when I think of Jingle Ball lineups and those Jingle Ball radio tours that go around the country, the person I imagine headlining them is Charlie Puth because that's a working man's and working pop star's arena. And he'll work forever because he's so talented. I could see him having a whole second career writing hits for some other big artist. I feel like he'll be in our lives forever, but I never feel like he's going to be touring arenas or anything. Exactly. Even now, he can't sell out the forum. Right. Niall Horan is playing the forum i saw that right before we got on mike steven what the fuck he's added a second night but charlie puth can't do that no. and niall i would even put in this blue collar pop singer category i i think niall is very much a tier four artist that's not for me to decide that's for whoever talks about niall to decide yeah i can't wait for that episode <laughs> it'll be very short yes but yeah charlie is not capable of selling out stadiums. He's not capable of selling at arenas. No. He could probably sell at the Greek theater. Maybe. Maybe. And I think that's the level that we're going to see him maintain at. Yeah. I completely agree. Unfortunately, this is not an interesting segment because I completely agree with you and there's absolutely no disputing it. So here's the last question before we get out of here. What is an underrated Charlie Puth song? Something we have not given a lot of attention to that we could send the show out on. A song that I think is underrated in Charlie Puth's discography is from the album Charlie, which sort of negates everything I was saying. But the song, I don't think that I like her. It's the second to last track on the record. Mm -hmm. There's just this moment where he breaks into the chorus and the vocals and the arrangement of the vocals is so gorgeous and compelling that I could just live in it. I think how we've been talking about Charlie being a master of these things, this is masterful work. I could easily pick something from voice notes, but we've already sort of beaten that dead horse. (laughs) I love this song. I'm glad you picked it. It's one of my favorites from this record. So we'll go out on that one. Stephen J. Horowitz, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the show again. This was great. Thanks for having me again. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Charlie Puth, an official tier for 
blue collar pop star. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the wonderful Stephen J. Horowitz for being such a great guest. Of course, to my main man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to help this podcast get made every single week. To PJ Brunetti for his help editing and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U A E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon and our merch is at poppantheonpod.com. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous July 14th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Ticket link in the show notes of the episode. And until we meet again, I will see you guys soon and have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Zero.